Welcome to Getting Legal With It, a podcast for Colorado young lawyers by Colorado young lawyers. I'm your host, Kevin Cheney. For those listening to us for the first time, I'm a personal injury and criminal defense lawyer here in Colorado. I graduated from the University of Colorado Law School in 2014 and founded my practice, Cheney Galuzzi and Howard, a short time later. I'm a member of the Colorado Trial Lawyers Association, where I serve on its board, executive committee, and legislative committee. I'm also a member of the Colorado Criminal Defense Bar Association. And finally, I serve on the Colorado Bar Association's Board of Governors, the CBA Executive Committee, and the CBA Young Lawyers Division Executive Council. If you're interested in learning more about any of these wonderful organizations, please feel free to shoot me an email at kevin at cghlawfirm.com. This podcast is created and sponsored by the Colorado Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division. Our goal with this podcast is to bring you bi-weekly episodes with information that is both fun and informative for young lawyers. We have some awesome guests lined up and we are just getting started. If you like our podcast, please, please, please leave us a review and tell your colleagues. And with that, let's jump right in. I'm really excited for our guest today, uh, Laura Wolf. Laura is a partner at Wolf Guevara. Her practice includes advocating on behalf of individuals suffering from abuses of their civil rights, including minors suffering from the violation of their rights by school officials, persons whose liberties are lost at the hands of the police and other government officials, employees facing discrimination in the workplace, and victims of sexual assault and violence through both the criminal justice and civil legal systems. Prior to forming Wolf Guevara, Laura was a partner at a prominent civil rights firm here in Denver. She graduated summa cum laude from Brandeis University in 2008 and cum laude from Harvard Law in May 2013. Laura previously served as a judicial clerk for the Honorable Brooke Jackson on the United States District District Court for the District of Colorado. And with that, let's jump right in. Laura, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I am doing all right. I'm going out of town tomorrow, so this is actually my Friday, so uh, I'm happy for that. I have a half day tomorrow, and I'm thinking back to my elementary school days when when you had half days you got pizza and you always had to put in your order for one or two slices you know like ahead of time right you had to know ahead of time i kind of want to do that tomorrow i want to like have a slice of pizza you should half days we should bring half days back i think half days uh are wonderful uh and uh we should definitely explore that why do kids get all the fun yeah and when is the last time you got to like put in an order for just a slice of pizza with your friends i mean we can't really see each other these days anyways but you could go to like marquis right get your pizza i guess the other thing we should probably bring back is nap time nap time was one of you know in kindergarten you hate it and now i look back and i'm like nap time was legit I feel like most people I know in COVID have brought back nap time. That's probably true. That's probably true. <laughs> I'm not a good napper. You get me to nap and I'm just going to sleep. Like it's not, it's, it turns into a quote unquote sleep. Once you hit two hours. Yeah, that's long. no longer a nap. That's a full on sleep. That's that's, that's fair. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Laura, why don't, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Where are you from? Uh, and kind of go from there. I'm from New Jersey originally, if you can hear it. I don't know if I have an accent or not, but uh, but I'm I am aggressive and loud enough that people can usually tell that I'm from New Jersey. That's fair. That's yeah, fair. That's I talk fair. quickly. Um, I moved out here after, I guess, after law school. Yeah. Um, I had a long period. I had started a clerkship in January, so I had this you know bizarre six months off. So I traveled around South America, which was fantastic. Nice. Um, and I like solo traveling a lot. So my mom was terrified I was going to be 
you know, kidnapped or murdered or something. And right, I'm right. Fine, I'm still here. Moms are gonna mom. They're gonna you mom. Know, they're, uh, it's, it's true. It's true. And then I got here, and um, you know, have been in Colorado ever since. So that's my only tie to Colorado is that I moved here after graduation. Ah, okay, okay. Uh, so what about for undergrad? Uh, obviously, from your bio, I know you went to Brandeis University. Where is Brandeis University? It is in Waltham, Massachusetts, which is nine miles. Yes, west of uh, Boston. Yeah, because east would be the ocean. So <laughs> nine miles okay. west of Boston and a very nerdy school. I'm Jewish, a very Jew-heavy school. Okay. Um, the Creators of Friends, this is the best part about Brandeis. The Creators of Friends went there, and there's a place there called Chums, and that's what they made Central Perk off of. And they've confirmed that, but you can also tell from looking at the two places. So. Interesting. Fun fact. Learn something new every day. I know. And we got this great, amazing coffee shop where we had all of these like bands play and just amazing food and drinks. So. After uh, graduating Brandeis, uh, I know you went to uh, Harvard Law School, which I uh, hear at least is a semi-good school. Um, but did you go directly to Harvard from Brandeis or did you take a little time off? So I took two years off. I moved to San Francisco. I didn't know it was hilly. This is how little I'd done research. So I packed a suitcase. I knew one person in San Francisco and I was sleeping on his for- floor for a week. I get there and I call up my mom and I was 21 and I was like, mom, Caleb's part of town is like really hilly. <laughs> and my mom said, did you look up anything about San Francisco before you moved It's here? a thing. Uh, it's just, you've heard, you know, did you know? She even said, I mean, the beginning of a full house. I mean, hello. Right, right. So I actually really wanted to work at Google and I applied and I got an, a job offer and I declined it and ended up working at a hedge fund, which was bizarre. Um, I think I was their token liberal. That's fair. It Everyone was needs one. July of 2008 when I started, and the Ooh. hedge fund had started in June of 08. So Ooh. that was interesting. Is that hedge fund, uh, did it make it? Did it survive? It absolutely did not survive. Uh. <laughs> but weirdly, my old boss had a lawsuit that he had filed as a plaintiff against someone that ended up in front of my judge that I clerked for, Judge Jackson. And it was at, like, it was up on appeal the entire time of my clerkship. And it came right down right as I was leaving. And he, like, settled it the Friday before trial. I was going to go to trial just to watch him. Interesting. I know. So is that, uh, I guess, what brought you back to law school then? Did you, I mean, so Google was kind of your your plan A. Uh, did you always kind of have some interest in maybe being a lawyer? Or was that something that developed later in life? No, I had taken the LSAT. I wanted to go to law school. I wanted time in between. Um, I had had friends who had worked at Google I really wanted to work for like the good part of Google where they had sort of like th- this aid and donation part and all that. And then, of course, I got one of those really low rung kind of interviews. So, you know, doing really boring work. And I decided I didn't want to do that kind of work. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah. I don't think that they liked that. I don't think they were used to getting no's. Um, they did not reimburse me for my for my taxi, which they claim they would. After I declined, I got no reimbursement. Well, Thank you, Google. Google I want my $30. Li- yeah, if you're listening, Google, you owe Laura $30, and she's really upset about it. Plus interest. <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about your um, career path. So obviously, you do civil rights law. Is that what you went to law school um, planning to do, or was that something that developed kind of later? I always wanted to do employment discrimination. So that, which was also interesting when I worked at the hedge fund, they knew that in my interview, I was very honest interviewer, said I was planning to leave in a couple of years. Um, And then, you know, they also had to watch their mouths a little bit more around me because they knew what I wanted to do. Um, And so, no, I always wanted to do that. I did almost end up sort of on the corporate track because it's a bit easier. You know, they have all these big firms come and put you on a very easy path to getting a job. So I did end up doing one summer at a firm for half my summer, but I always had wanted to do civil rights. And um, did you work while you were in law school? Did you do some internships or tell us a little bit about that? 
I didn't do any sort of full-time work. I mean, I basically read all day, I think, for my full That's fair. Work. That sounds like law school. Yeah, and I'd save the whole purpose of taking two years off was to save money so I could pay my bills, essentially, and take out, obviously, all the loans that you need to take out. But I did the externships and all of the internships that you could, either in the summers or during the, the school year. So I did all of that to just try to get as much experience. So I ended up doing like a nonprofit experience. I did a private for, you know, profit law firm that did plaintiff's employment work. I did... Um, you know, I can't, oh, a, a, like a legal aid foundation. So I did all the different sort of check your box, figure out what you like best. Okay. And did that kind of reaffirm kind of the practice area and kind of focus that you wanted uh, for a career? It did to an extent. I do think the law schools, I don't know if this is unique to Harvard. I think it's not. I think they have a hard time helping you get into that career path. So it always feels like if you want to do any sort of public rights or, or, or really public um, interest work, you have to do something like a fellowship or you have to do something with the government. They didn't really understand that there were really private civil rights firms that you could apply to. So that was the scarier part. I kept thinking, I have to get into one of these tracks. Right. And that was really hard. But I knew I wanted to do that work. I just didn't know what all my options were, I guess. And what led you to, so obviously I think your first job out of law school was clerking for Judge Jackson. Um, did you... I guess, kind of seek out uh, Judge Jackson, or were you just kind of looking for a federal clerkship generally? Or tell us a little bit about that process. So I'm really neurotic, is what you're going to know about me. <laughs> so I decided I only wanted to clerk for a district court judge. I wanted to do trial work. So I looked nationwide and created these massive spreadsheets, and I would <laughs> actually go on the almanac of the federal judiciary, and I'd like homework for myself every night. This was my two all summer. I'd come home from my work at my big law firm, and I would do all of this homework. So I basically did these two full-time jobs to go through and see like what do people say about them in the almanac of the federal judiciary? How do they decide employment law cases? And do I agree with you know their sentiments and their tone? And so I was very neurotic. He was not my one of 10. Certainly, I applied to still quite a number of judges, but he was on my list of people that I would be more than happy to clerk for and very lucky that I got a clerk for him. So you are our uh, first person that we've uh, had on the podcast uh, that has, uh, I think, uh, federal clerking experience. Tell um, for you know a lot of our listeners are either young lawyers or law students. Um, what is the process like for kind of getting a, a federal clerkship? Are there, I'm assuming there's applications and then maybe some writing and then some interviews, but I'm not really sure uh, that was not necessarily my track. So I don't know if I'll be the best to answer. I know you have Philip coming on next who will be better because my year was the year that the plan disappeared, which was this concept that had been in place for about 10 years, probably technically a violation of the, um, the Sherman Act, um, the <laughs> Antitrust Act, because it was an agreement between all these judges to not start interviews and not start application reviews until certain dates and deadlines. And that summer, Georgetown broke the pact. And, and all of a sudden, there was this you know, chaos. And, and they had to OK you know, teachers and, and professors being recommenders early and applications going out early. So originally, I was supposed to be on this sort of plan where you only had interviews during September. And I think it's completely changed now. I will say it's a lot of work. It's a lot of like application. It's mostly like admin work, putting everything together. Interesting. And so then after working for uh, Judge Jackson, I know you went to a prominent civil rights firm um, in, in Denver. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, that experience. Yeah, I was at Rathad Muhammad Bai for five years. My last year there as a partner it was, you know, incredibly great and getting to learn all of this new area of law. At the same time, you're this brand new attorney learning everything brand new. So you're just kind of rolling with the punches. I remember my second day being asked to draft a subpoena 
to get certain records. And I literally looked around like, I don't, mm, mm, I, don't <laughs> I clerked for a federal judge. I don't know how to draft a yeah. subpoena. Googling subpoena over there. I, I trust me. I know that starting my own firm, like Google was my number one resource. That was like, you know, you get the basics and then you can call somebody and at least not sound like an idiot. Cause you've like Googled them, you know, and you're yeah. like, okay. I definitely played dumb when I needed to. I would like call places and definitely do the whole, I'm a brand new attorney. I don't want to mess anything up. I can, I, I don't want to get yelled at. Like not that anyone was yelling at me, but you know, you call and you're just like, could you help me please? Um, but yeah, it was like, it was a lot of work, but it was fantastic. I had my first trial in about four and a half months after I started and we That's had this awesome. huge win and yeah. And I filed, I think like 12 substantive pleadings in that case in like the four months and discovery had basically not started when I got there. They only had exchanged initial disclosure. Wow. So it was a lot of jumping right in um, and learning very quickly. What a cool experience though. You know, you talk to so many uh, attorneys that, you know, go to sometimes larger firms and, you know, it'll be years before they really do anything substantive or kind of see the the fruits of their labor, if you will. So what a wonderful experience, uh, you know, to be able to kind of jump right in that and scary, but wonderful kind of at the same time. Yeah, it's actually my big, I'll say it's my biggest pet peeve when I get these calls sometimes from opposing counsel who most of them won't do this, but a lot of them will do this. You know, I, oh, I've been in the practice for this many years. I don't know how long you've been in, but you know, they're trying to sort of one at me. Of course, they know how long I've been in. Hi, Google. Um, but there's this moment where I'm sitting there going, you're at a very large firm. And while I understand you've been in there a long time and you have a ton of experience, I'm not discounting that. I think you need to recognize that I have way more experience than my seven years because I've been in it from the ground level, essentially, like you said, like running my cases from day one in many ways, you know, of course, with partners there. But by my second year, I was literally running cases and being told to call partners at prominent law firms and have discussions with them about what concessions we were willing to make. And I was maybe 15 months into my job. Yeah, that's the that's a, it's, it's such a red flag uh, when they hit you with, uh, well, you know, in my 40 years, I've been doing this. And uh, and I'm sure even as like a female attorney, that must happen like even more than it like, you know, happens to me and I'll get, you know, and I've kind of learned that it's usually a tell that they don't know what they're talking about because the ones that are really good will call you and be like, Hey, here's this case. Take a look at it. I think your case is probably screwed. Um, but call me after you read it. And so, you know, and then you're like, Oh man, I, I probably am screwed. And, uh, you know, the ones that, you know, have to, brandish their, uh, you know, years of experience or, you know, how much smarter they are and all of that kind of stuff or, uh, you know, the ones that you're like, you probably are bluffing, you know, you don't really have anything. So, uh, you know, that's interesting. So um, after uh, leaving Rathod Mohammadbai, uh, you opened up your f new firm recently, uh, actually with a buddy of mine from law school, John Michael. And uh, tell us a little bit about that. So, you know, opening a law firm in the middle of a pandemic is amazingly wonderful, <laughs> as you can imagine. No, it's actually been really good. I mean, we were terrified. I will say overhead, much better. We have no office, and so that's great. That helps. Um, we work from home. It is interesting to sort of start a law firm, and I've known John Michael for years. It's obviously how we decided to work together, but to start a law firm with your friend and a partner, and every time you have to have a meeting or a discussion is a phone call, and you're sort of like, I don't know if I'm interrupting them because I'm not in a room with them. And so there's all of that, you know, those types of kinks. But we've been lucky where we've had a really good number of people call in. We have a good number of cases. We're doing really well healthy-wise in terms of that. And so 
you know, pandemic was terrifying, but luckily, fingers crossed, knock on wood, it continues. So I, I do want to talk a little bit about um, uh, an award that you won um, uh, recently from the CBA, and that is the uh, the Gary L. McPherson Outstanding Lawyer of the Year Award. Um, and that award is given annually to a young lawyer with an outstanding record of professional success, community service achievements, and a strong commitment to civic participation and inspiring others. Uh, Gary McPherson himself actually won the award um, in 1993. Obviously, it was not named after him then um, and went on to serve uh, three terms in the state legislature uh, following his uh, kind of tragic passing uh, in 2000. The bar um, voted to rename the award the Gary L. McPherson Outstanding Lawyer of the Year Award. Um, and from being involved in the, the Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division, this is really the probably the most prestigious award um, that you can win as a as a young lawyer in uh, Colorado. Um, tell us a little bit about kind of what it meant when you found out you were you were going to be you were you'd been selected. I was really surprised. Um, I was very honored. One big reason I was really surprised is a really good friend of mine was one of the other finalists. And I know this year there was a, a smaller pool of finalists and um, her name's Jen Cardi and she's insanely amazing. And she just, you know, is everything that I, I you know, hope to be one day. And so I felt a little like, I feel like this is really our, our your, not even ours, your award. <laughs> let's be clear. Um, and she was very gracious and sweet, um, you know, and, and because I think she's 37 this year. So I think it was like the last year she was able to to get the award. Um, and so I was really surprised. I definitely, especially knowing my competition, did not think I was going to be getting it. I was very um, honored. I am, you know, just, I feel like people keep giving me this recognition for doing so many things. And I sit there and I go, I don't really know all the things I'm doing. So I don't know like why people keep recognizing it. I feel like I'm just doing my job and then I have certain interests and I just run with those interests and happens to be that those interests align with these criteria and what people want to recognize, you know, you know, imposter syndrome sometimes is, is very real. Um, (laughs) I was recently appointed, uh, to the uh, CBA executive council, um, and when, uh, Jessica Brown, who's the CBA president called and like asked me and I'm like, no, 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 I, I wanted the, the lower committee. I was trying to get on like the CLE board or something, you know, like kind of maybe work for somebody up and they're like, no, no, this is what we want you for. Like we spoke to all these people. You came very highly recommended and like, we want you. And I'm like, are you sure? Because I know some of the other people that applied and they are probably better than I am, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird being in that position, but having interviewed all of the candidates and, um, looked at, you know, all of the criteria, you, you certainly deserved it. So, um, congratulations on that one. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about kind of bar associations generally. Um, are you, um, involved in any of the different bar associations that we have in Colorado? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I'll start by first saying everyone would use these terms bar associations with me. And I was that kid who went to law school with no people in my family who are lawyers and no friends of friends who are lawyers. So I didn't know anything. And I get out and I'm just like, what are what is a bar association? What is this? And people kept being like, you have to join the bar association and the diversity bar associations. And it was very confusing. Now that I understand what they are, which is essentially a collective group of people through an organization right. um, who have similar interests in a certain area of legal practice. Um, just for anyone else out there who's like me, um, <laughs> that's, that's fair, for you. Um, I, yeah, so I'm pretty active within the Colorado Bar Association, certainly within the Women's Bar Association. I have a lot of these sub memberships, like the Women Trial Lawyers Network through the CTLA, um, the Lawyer Civil Rights Committee, which I don't know if it counts as a bar association. 
Um, it might sure. not. Sure. We'll sure. We'll call it that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, PILA, which I need to rejoin now that I'm, I'm in my own practice, but that's the Plaintiff's Employment Lawyers Association. So there's, I feel like so many, but it's great because you get these like subgroups of people who have very specific practice areas and interests and knowledge and skill. And so you just get this group of people. I primarily love them for the listservs and then for obviously the events pre and hopefully post pandemic. Why? Uh, so for our young lawyers and, uh, you know, law students that are listening, why is it important to kind of get active in some of these kind of lawyer groups, uh, whether they're a bar association or you know some other type of association? Why is that valuable for a young lawyer who's just kind of starting out? Yeah, I, that's a great question. I think it's that, at least for me, having so many resources, having so many people who you can jump on a listserv, you put out a question, you get all these answers back, or you get off-list answers, whatever it might be, you can basically get to know people that way. You know, you can maybe see someone put out an answer that you thought was really smart and really interesting, and you give them a phone call and you say, hey, can we grab lunch sometime? I saw your post on this listserv. I'd love to get to know you better. It's really, I think, how you get to know people. And then Outside of getting to know people and like learning literally the law through other people and sort of collectively not making a mistake together, you, um, which is always my fear, making mistakes in my practice, um, you, like the CWBA, it was Sarah Parity who asked me to join the um, public policy committee. I had no idea what they did. She just said, look, I'll kind of, you'll be interested, I promise, and I need someone I can rely on. Please join. And it has been an amazing experience. And I didn't, you know, I'm just now really active with the state legislature and all these different bills. I would have never known any of this. Well, and Sarah's great. You know, she asks, you say yes. And then there oh, yeah. you are. There you are. So yeah. that's when uh, Sarah asks, the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, as a shout out to listservs, I mean, listservs are probably the only reason that I was able to practice without getting sued um, when I when I first started out, because there is. Uh, you know, so much good information. Um, and there's actually this guy on the CTLA listserv who I've never met in real life. So Rick Crane, if you're listening, this is a shout out to you. I've never met you. Um, but you literally post uh, so much good info on the CTLA listserv. And I have a folder uh, on our server that's basically Rick Crane info. And it is just a ton of case sites and uh, information about insurance cases. And it, I literally now have this like just appendix of information and it's all um, from the listserv um, and it's it's so valuable. So uh, I would echo um, your advice that, you know, definitely should get involved, definitely should join and utilize them. You know, that's kind of the, the point of having them. Um, so there's another organization that I don't know actually a ton about, but I saw that you were a member of it and I thought it sounded interesting. So I want to ask you about it. What is the Rocky Mountain Victim Law Center? Um, and I think that you maybe serve on its board. Is that right? Yep. So I'm on the board. I'm their vice chair. I love this organization so much. It's such an amazing resource. So basically, it was founded by John Clune and his now wife. Um, back then, they were just friends um, many years ago. And I'm blanking on her name. So I apologize, John. Um, I apologize to your partner. But John Clune's this amazing attorney. He's based um, out in Boulder. And he does fantastic Title IX work as well as work on behalf of sex assault victims nationwide, really. And so he started this organization really for crime victims. And he always wanted to have a Title IX component. But until actually this year, it hasn't had one. And it's been around for, for some time now. And so they basically provide sort of a mix of legal services. It's, it is a legal service organization, but they staff about half of their staff are social workers and they work with these crime victims to provide them free legal um, uh, representation throughout their criminal process, now throughout the Title IX process. 
Um, they now do this thing called link coordinating, which like, let's say there's a crime victim, maybe a DV victim who's, you know, needs to move out of their home, but their landlord's threatening them or vice versa. Uh, maybe they have to stay and they don't have enough money to pay the rent because of DV. They will get someone to represent them on a low bono scale that right. they'll pay for. So they just do all of this like holistic work with victims of crime and survivors of, of crime. Um, and I'm just floored by the organization, how much they do with such small staff is incredible to me. Is that an organization that if any of our listeners are kind of interested in, in that area of law, is that a, an organization that's always kind of looking for volunteers or uh, maybe uh, volunteer lawyers, I guess, if you will, uh, that uh, can kind of help out? Yeah, so we're looking actually right now for board members. Um, so we'd love some more. And we have a lot of lawyer board members. So we'd love you to um, please join. But if you also know some non-lawyers, we would love them too. Um, and then, yeah, you can actually join with the link program to sort of sign your name up as a contract attorney. So you get paid. It's a much lower rate. It's like $75 an hour. But let's be honest. I know our rates are crazy. That's and they're, I don't actually like that word. Our rates are ridiculous. And so when we look at it, $75 an hour for our work, when you look at what my hourly rate was whenever I was working as a salaried employee in any job I've ever had is far beyond that. <laughs> um, granted, I'm not working 40 hours of billable a week, but still. And so if you're looking to do that work and get some payment and work with someone at RMVLC through that, they'll be a great connection. Awesome. Awesome. Um, well, I want to tell uh, talk a little bit about uh, civil rights law. It's, it's, it's always a kind of a fascinating uh, area of law. And Certainly uh, in uh, today's times, it has been uh, kind of front and center um, with some of the issues that have been going on across the country uh, from, you know, police uh, brutality and things like that. So I kind of want to just talk a little bit about that um, before we jump into, I guess, a little bit more um, of, you know, some of the types of cases and stuff you do. What is the kind of day to day practice like of, you know, doing civil rights law? It's a great question. I wonder what my day-to-day -day changes literally every day. Um, it is, I mean, basically, you're spending a ton of time not only on, obviously, phone calls and potential intakes and new cases. A lot of it is working with your clients. It's um, your clients are going through a traumatic time in their lives. I mean, a lot of us who are working, especially on the plaintiff side, who are having Clients come to us. I can't speak to the defense side. I'm not, I'm not saying that they're not going through trauma. They probably are too. Um, but on the plaintiff side, our clients are coming to us in a time of trauma, seeking to be made whole in some way. And a lot of them feel like, well, the law is the thing that will sort of make me whole and fix the problem. And we don't really get to fix the problem. We get to sort of do the best we can and make someone as whole as we can in the confines that we're kind of found in. And so a lot of my work, I feel like, is working with my clients, not only on their expectations, but on those moments when they're just really down or really stressed and really anxious. So I'd say like a lot of my week is that. Um, and then I actually do most of my writing in the evenings and weekends because I feel like my days are mostly emails and getting back to people and just being responsive. Um, I try a lot to call people if I feel like they don't have a case that I don't want to send them around where it's it's close enough. I want to call them and say, hey, like, let's talk about this for just 20 minutes, you know, and here's why I don't necessarily see a claim, but you should talk to other lawyers. So even things like that take a lot of time. Um, I love it. It's you never get bored because no day is the same. You know, it's, it's interesting. It's, and that's a good piece of advice uh, to young lawyers. It's always nice. It's hard, but it's nice to tell the clients the truth about their claim. So, you know, we get calls uh, quite, quite quite frequently. Um, and uh, when we were first starting out, you know, we basically were like, hey, you know, if you have cases that, you know, maybe are not the most financially viable, you know, send them to us. We're looking for experience, things of that nature. And you get these people who will be like, well, you know, I've called 15 law firms, but all of them were too busy. And so, you know, I uh, was hoping that you could help us. 
And I'm like, all right, man, let's, let's sit down and be like, because here's the truth. They're not too busy. Like, this is the problem. Like you have X, Y, and Z going on and the law says A, B, and C. And unfortunately as messed up as it is, like there is no legal remedy. And so, you know, like, and the people are so appreciative. They're like, wow, like I really wish someone had told me that. And I'm like, well, they're trying not to hurt your feelings, you know, and they want, they don't want to be liable if they tell you something wrong. So it's just easier to tell people that you're busy, but you know, we've actually gotten some good referrals from clients who we could not help because out of all the lawyers they called, we were the ones that took 20 minutes and explained to them the truth, which is that there was just nothing we could do. No, I think that's exactly right. And it's hard because you can't always do it, you know? And I have actually this list, I have like four that I've been meaning to get back to you from earlier this week, which four sounds really small, but when you call every single person or you reach out, that's probably gonna be at least half an hour with each person. It's actually a lot of time. And then I think one thing I didn't even recognize until I was sort of doing less writing and more of the management side work at Rathana Muhammad Bai, and then obviously my own firm, is being on a phone all day is emotionally tiring. I mean, it is exhausting to be hearing people and listening and compassionate all day with people. I didn't know the terms compassion fatigue before I started the law practice. I didn't know the term secondary trauma. I actually learned that from a board member on at RMVLC who there you go. heard me talking about my practice <laughs> my first year in, second year in, and said, you know, have you do you know about these things? You should look into them. Very kind board member. So what kind of, uh, obviously civil rights law can probably entail a bunch of different stuff. Um, do you guys do pretty much anything to do with civil rights or do you guys kind of have a main focus or how does that work? So we do, um, I mean, I guess we don't do everything. We're, For example, prisoner rights is very nuanced and niche. And I think that I've told friends of mine who, who do prisoner rights work that I would love to learn from them. It wasn't really a practice area we did at my old firm. And so I feel more anxious about taking on a case where there's a lot of procedural hurdles and I don't know all that procedure. We do quite a lot of... Um, Government abuse, school abuse is a big one, like Title IX cases with um, sex assault in schools, but also other types of abuse like disability rights. Um, We do some housing and then obviously a fair amount of employment. I'd say half of our practice is employment and the other half is just a whole variety. And then sex assault is a really big one and just a whole variety of arenas. And I don't know if you call that civil rights or not, but we have a very trauma-informed sex assault focused practice too. And when you're talking about, um, I guess, sex assault cases, are those generally where you're going after kind of organizations for failing to protect people? Or are you suing actually like defendants that have been uh, you know, accused of, of sex assault or, or both? I once sued a defendant who was accused. And I will tell you, getting to collect against that judgment is pretty impossible. And I think what I've learned is for a lot of people going through that process is incredibly traumatizing. And I give them that heads up who want to sue the actual person who engaged in the sex assault that, you know, you might get a victory, but you might never get to not only collect on the the monetary aspect, money aside, it's a very traumatizing um, uh, procedure to go through process. And if you go against an entity, not only are you one, obviously dealing with the systemic problems that led to the abuse in the first place, but I have found that it's not as abusive. It is still a very traumatizing process. I don't think it's as abusive in terms of questioning that the assault happened in the first place, which becomes the defense. I mean, that is the defense with an individual. With an entity, their defense is more like, we weren't negligent. We couldn't have stopped this from happening. It's not typically you didn't get assaulted. And I do think there's a really big difference there for clients who are being told essentially that they're lying about their sex assault 
much more traumatizing process. So I'm a big agency person and I try to tell people, here's what it's going to look like in the process. And you have to understand if you want to move forward, what that's going to feel like um, and how long it's going to go on for. And so typically I only go up against entities now. Interesting. Yeah. And, and I kind of I kind of wonder that, you know, collectability would be very difficult. Obviously, um, as far as an individual is concerned, there's no there's no insurance coverage for, um, you know, intentional torts, and especially not one like that. Um, so one question I had uh, about civil rights law, I assume that you're mostly in federal court or do you guys do some state court work, too? Or tell us a little bit about that. I'd say mostly you're in federal court, but it's changing these days because Nowadays, you have a lot of additional remedies. I know we're going to talk about the SB 2217 bill. That's going to be a bill where you're going to want to bring your claims in state court just under the Colorado Constitution, where you don't want to have a whole qualified immunity issue happening with federal claims. Um, CADA, which is the Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act, provides for just as many, if not actually more forms of relief against employment discrimination than Title VII, the ADA, and the ADEA. And so there's a lot of reason now to be in state court, plus it's a faster process. And so for the clients, it's just from an economic standpoint, it makes a lot more sense to get through their case much more quickly as opposed to having it be three years maybe before they hit a trial. Now, on are some of, uh, I obviously have not done uh, really any uh, civil rights law, um, for like employment law stuff, is there administrative remedies that you kind of have to exhaust first? So it's kind of like a, an administrative process and then a uh, courtroom kind of litigation process. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, you do. I actually love the CCRD, which is the Colorado Civil Rights Division. I feel like they get a bad rep for being a state agency. They do amazing work. And so I'm very into them. You file your charge with them. You have to do it in employment cases. You have to do it in public accommodation cases. You don't, well, to get any sort of monetary relief, you have to in, in public accommodation. You don't have to in housing, but it's incredibly helpful to do it in housing. And so it's another useful process. I think they do great investigatory work where essentially you file a charge. It's kind of like your complaint. You list out your allegations. When a person does it themselves, it's usually in a paragraph format, like one paragraph. When I do it, I write it like a complaint, like number of paragraphs. And then it's on the defense to, or the respondent, they call them, to respond to that complaint. They don't have to do it in a numbered way, but they typically give you a, a position statement. It's very detailed. And it helps you also understand maybe your client wasn't aware of all these other reasons for their termination, let's say, or their eviction. And now you're learning about it through that process, which makes it a much you know, less costly process if you realize that there's not a viable claim to file a lawsuit. Do most cases kind of resolve at that level, or is it usually just kind of like a procedural hurdle that you know litigation is coming and you kind of got to go through these motions first? It depends on the strength of the case, I think, more than anything else. So I think if um, the person's pro se, probably less likely in some ways to settle only because, you know, probably the employer, the respondent's thinking they're not going to get sued anyways. But sometimes they can also resolve it because they can go to an early mediation. That's a free mediation through the CCRD and, and resolve it for a lower sum of money than an attorney might want. Um, I'd say really it depends so much on the strength of the case because one problem is it costs so much for the respondent to respond to these charges that they don't necessarily want to resolve it without getting all the discovery that they can get through then litigation. Mm. The other downside is litigation is even more expensive. Right, so, right. <laughs> you know. Interesting. Um, well, I do want to uh, turn to some of the current events. But before we do, just because I know we have a lot of um, listeners that are you know thinking about what kind of careers they want to do, I do want to just briefly talk about uh, a, a business or a group you founded, uh, Spark Justice Careers. 
Um, and I, I heard you talk about this during your interview for the uh, Gary McPherson Award, but um, tell our listeners kind of what that is and kind of what that could offer um, a young person or a law student that's kind of thinking about, you know, getting into this line of work. Yeah, I, have, I need to update it. So I apologize, everyone. There has not been an update really since COVID, um, but I will do more posts soon. It basically was this idea I had where I was having all of these great coffees and lunches with young students or happy hours with young students who were young lawyers who wanted to break into civil rights. And I felt like I was saying the same story over and over, which happy to do that. But I felt like, hey, maybe there's a way to just put a broader resource out there. And I've gotten calls from people just in random places in the country who have found it, who just you know, I don't, I do this whole thing on my site, like, oh, it's a 20 minute consultation. I, I just chat with a person as long as they need. And we go through their story and what they're going through and what they're thinking about for their next steps. And, you know, most of my chats with people aren't, you know, formal coaching relationships. I offer that. Um, I just ended one with someone who was like very happy with kind of getting the clarity and guidance they needed to make their next step in their career. But the goal is essentially to, to demystify civil rights and demystify all the things that I think our law schools try really hard, but they don't know because it's such a niche field and it's hard right. to, you know, give options through the career office when you don't even know what firms are hiring when, you know? And so it's a lot more about how do you relationship build? How do you get into this field? And then how do you sort of navigate your way either into a job or like you did starting your own practice right off the bat? And then how do you get the mentors you need so that you can really support that? Awesome. Well, uh, there you go, uh, young people out there. Uh, if you're interested in civil rights, uh, definitely check that out. Um, I kind of want to end our discussion today by talking a little bit about the current events. Um, we are shooting this episode at the very beginning of September, um, and uh, this summer has been uh, a lot of focus, unfortunately. Uh, well, depending on how you look at it, unfortunately, there were some events that led to a lot of focus uh, on uh, kind of police abuse and uh, civil rights. Um, and the CBA actually put out a really, really good um, statement about racial justice. And there's been a lot of movement um, kind of in this uh, area. And one of the things that is often talked about, but I think rarely really understood is this topic of qualified immunity. Um, and so since I have a civil rights lawyer here, uh, what is, you know, for, for lawyers, obviously that, you know, maybe have a basic understanding, but don't do this area of law. Like what is qualified immunity? So I might sound a little cynical to everyone out there. Qualified immunity is a completely judge-made doctrine um, that created immunity for offenses under Section 1983, or really Section 1983 is a, a mechanism by which to bring civil rights claims under the U.S. Constitution um, against state actors. So if a state actor violates your right to due process or your right to you know, um, not be searched and seized without you know, um, reasonable cause. And so essentially, um, you could originally bring lawsuits through 1983, which is part of the civil rights movement, and seek relief for those violations. And over time, starting in the 80s, um, basically the Supreme Court started saying, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't have police officers who could be sued if, you know, they didn't understand that what they were doing was wrong. And, and that's a nice concept. We don't have that in any other area of law. Let's be very clear. There's no ignorance of the law is a bar to recovery. And so it went from there to becoming this concept that if I get a little nerdy, um, basically said the law had to be clearly established. And what that meant a long time ago is very different than what it means now. And so the basic is a long time ago, there were some common sense elements to that. What it is now is if there is not an exact case with that exact fa fact pattern with that finding saying it is unconstitutional, then you don't have a claim. And the problem is 
in the clear in the qualified immunity sort of prongs on clearly established, the judges are allowed to skip ahead and just say whether it was clearly established first, and they never have to address whether there was an actual constitutional violation. So you have almost no case law, and then you basically create this this you know effect where everything sort of snowballs into itself, and there's never any case law to make anything clearly established. So it, it's pretty much the situation then, if I'm understanding you correctly, that. The first bad actor can pretty much do violate your rights in any imaginable way, even that is like really common sense and obvious. But if they're the first person to do that specific act, they pretty much are are, are impossible to do. They're going to be immune um, from being held accountable until someone comes along and does pretty much the exact same thing in the exact same way. And then that person potentially, if the first case had actually talked about it, might be held accountable. Yep, and only if that first case went up on appeal and then got a written published decision finding that there was a constitutional <laughs> violation. So you also have to have it be either within the courts of appeals if it's not here in the 10th Circuit, you know, through enough enough of the sister circuits on published opinions or here in the 10th Circuit or obviously the Supreme Court, which is very few cases. So even if you have a district court decision, you can lose unqualified immunity. And here's the other problem. They can raise it at any time. I had a case that went on for almost three years. And my defendants in the case, I, I was suing an entity. So there's no qualified immunity for entities. Like the, the municipality doesn't have it. The problem is it's a harder um, barrier for relief against the municipality. But, um, and that's a whole other hurdle. Right. So when you want to go against the individual for just the actual tort, for the actual harm, that should be a lower bar except for this qualified immunity. And after three years in this case, the defendants finally raised qualified immunity for the first time after denying that they were even government actors. And the court ended up granting it in their favor on the grounds that because we had not withdrawn our allegation from the initial complaint that they were government actors, that despite us having no evidence to support it and their claim that they were not, our allegation alone sufficed for him to grant qualified immunity. It was, uh, and I, I will say this, Unreal. I actually think the judge was maybe trying to help us because here's the other problem. If you if you deny qualified immunity, those actors have a right to an immediate interlocutory appeal. So I almost think the judge was maybe trying to say, I'm saving you from yourself. I'm saving you. You're going to have your claims against the municipality. But those individuals got off the hook right at the end saying Unreal. that they it wasn't clearly established. Unreal. I mean, it literally, it just kind of boggles the mind that that is kind of our system and that that is how we have, you know, allowed it to kind of develop and get here. Um, thankfully, uh, my understanding is that here in Colorado, uh, there have been um, some changes uh, and um, that one of the new laws that was passed uh, was Senate Bill 2217 uh, um, in our uh, legislature um, this year, kind of in response to the protests and response to kind of this uh, desire to act and basically let's do something so this stop kind of happens all the time. Um, now, I know the law does a lot, but uh, being as we only have a little bit of time, um, how will that law impact qualified immunity? That's a great question. I will plug it here. There will be a trial talk article I may happen to be writing 7,000 words on all about this bill. So if anyone wants a very comprehensive read of this bill in our future trial talk, you can read all about it. Um, Leslie Harrod is co-writing it with me, uh, the, the primary bill sponsor. Um, um, for those who don't know, Trial Talk is CTLA's magazine. So if you're interested in this type of law, join CTLA, get yourself a copy of Trial Talk. 
it's at, the the articles are very thorough, and I can at least say from writing a couple, they take a long time. So hopefully people read them, um, and I hope that they'll be useful. This is actually the first bill like this in the country um, by any state, and certainly not federally. What it does is, so you know we have a Colorado Constitution. Before this, there was no what's called a private cause of action or a right to sue, at least explicitly written into the, the Colorado Constitution. And from my legal research, no one had ever brought the claim that maybe there was an implied cause of action. So this bill gives you a private cause of action under just the Bill of Rights, so that one section of the Colorado Constitution, to file lawsuits and only against people who are post-certified peace officers. So essentially, police officers um, jail deputies or prison guards, they're included even if they're not post-certified. So people who are essentially law enforcement and you can file claims for their violations of your civil rights only under the Colorado Constitution. And what it says is there will not be a qualified immunity defense. So one thing I do want to clarify, a lot of people have been reading this bill and going, oh my gosh, we've banished or abolished qualified immunity in Colorado. Well, we all know we can't do that supremacy clause. So we have no control over the federal claims. And what we're going to see more and more are these civil rights claims being brought in state court solely under the Colorado Constitution, which has never been litigated. So it's a whole brand new field. And my understanding is that the law also gets rid of um, the some of the other rules and, and regulations, I guess, or laws that we have in Colorado, including governmental immunity so that we don't have to you don't have to do CGIA notices. Is that right as well? Just for these types of just claims. for these type of claims, yeah. Obviously, did not end governmental immunity uh, across the board. That would be a, that would be a whole different world. But um, for these specific claims, you do not have to uh, do the governmental immunity um, notices, and it also removed the caps, right, related to well, all caps is for these type of cases, right? Yeah. So there were no caps to begin with. So it basically just said there are going to be no caps because we have them in tort law. We actually don't have them federally. So there's no caps on federal constitutional claims, whether they be the emotional distress caps or, or so non-economics, certainly not economics and not punitives. Um, you can't get punitives anyways against the municipality. So you're always limited there. One thing it does that's also fascinating is it says that a um, – a municipality or the or the employing agency must indemnify the officer because as I was sort of saying earlier, you can bring claims against the individuals who violate your rights under color of state law, as they put it, because they're acting as agents of the state. Right. But when you try to sue a municipality, you actually have to show a pattern, practice, or policy violation, meaning they had an actual pattern or practice or policy of violating your rights, not just some agent of theirs. There's no vicarious liability. So it's a much harder burden. It's a much higher burden. It's a much harder standard. And that's why even though there's no qualified immunity that applies, you usually can't get that type of liability. It's called Monell liability. So this is really helpful because what will sometimes happen even in federal cases is a municipality will say, go ahead and sue you know, our officers. We might not ever indemnify them for the harm that they've caused. And we might just sit back here and, and, and I've actually seen cases where this has happened, where you have these huge jury verdicts and the state or the municipality either or both can sit back and say, we don't want to indemnify. Right. And your average law enforcement officer does not have the financial means. I mean, you can go get a million dollar judgment, but um, I would assume that very, very few law enforcement officers have the ability to pay um, a million dollar verdict. And so having um, that that governmental entity, that town or, or county um, or state um, be held liable for that and actually have to, to pay those judgments gives uh, injured people and people who've had their rights violated the actual means to kind of collect on it. Is that right? Exactly. Awesome. Uh, do you think, I guess, do you think this law will have... Um, so obviously the law does, like I said, a ton of different things from body cameras to a bunch of you know different topics. But do you think that ending qualified immunity 
um, in Colorado for violations under the Colorado Constitution and kind of creating this new cause of action will have a, a positive impact? Like, will it lead to less police brutality if um, you know, these kind of frequent flyers, not going to name any of these towns, but frequent flyers uh, that are routinely being sued for violating people's rights. Will, do you think that this will cause a change in action as the, the kind of lawsuits and the money begins to stack up? I think it will. I think it's going to cause more people in our community to also question even just their taxpayer funds and where they're going, why we're putting officers on the street who maybe have engaged in uses of force in the past and they're getting put back on the street now because they've been cleared of any wrongdoing through these internal processes that just clear them kind of like a rubber stamp. Um, I'm working on a case that's publicly out there about that right now, and it's really troubling to see that the sheriff's department essentially won't ever hold a sheriff's deputy accountable even when they literally punch someone in the face who's chained to a wheelchair with you know no good basis to do that and that person's back on the streets and doing their job now under investigation for a second use of force which is not surprising when you get away with the first one that you're going to do it again so i mean i think it's really troubling and i do think that this bill when it there starts to be actual financial liability where a, a municipality can't respond and go well there's qualified immunity and you know, we'll see you because not only, like we said before, is it potentially or very likely a bar to any success, it's also an incredible money suck because you file a lawsuit, you go through whatever amount of pleading until they want to raise qualified immunity. And if they lose on qualified immunity, you're up on the 10th circuit for at least two years. Nothing can happen. And you lose all your witnesses and everyone's memories get shot because it's been years now. I mean, the Marvin Booker case didn't go to trial until about five or six years after his death. Wow. Do you, if you lose on qualified immunity, so if you bring a claim and then it gets dismissed with qualified immunity, do you usually have to pay attorney fees to the, the, the state or the municipal actor? No, attorney fees are only if it was truly frivolous, you know, okay. it's similar to the state court rule. Um, so you don't have to do that, but you obviously have to pay costs and your own attorneys, it, you know, it dissuades right. us because the whole purpose of attorney fee shifts is to say, Civil rights attorneys should bring these cases because even though their clients can't pay them by the hour, if they take the risk, there might be this reward at the end. It's really difficult for us to say, hey, I want to take your case, but the likelihood of success is so low now that even though I want to vindicate your rights, I have to even think as a business person whether I can financially do that. Right. And well, that is a risk. So um, in regular personal, not regular, but in personal injury law, when you sue a government uh, actor in Colorado and there's governmental immunity and you argue that it's been waived, uh, if you're wrong, it's automatic attorney fees. So if you, you know, sue somebody and it turns out that they were immune, um, it's uh, because it's under uh, 12B, they end up, that's how they end up dismissing it. Uh, you lose all the attorney fees. So you basically have to look at your client and be like, look, we can sue, you know, this city. And I think we're immune, but if we're wrong, um, you uh, we're going to be liable for all these attorney fees. And there's actually a case out there that says it usually is um, joint and several with the law firm. Wow. So the, it, it's it's really this massive, uh, it dissuades you from, it's really, really dangerous to sue uh, an entity unless you're almost positive there's a waiver. So. It's really kind of fascinating. You mean under the CGIA? Yeah, under the okay. CGIA. So it's really fascinating. So good to hear that that's not the case here. Um, good to hear that we are making some progress. Um, I like to end uh, all of our episodes. Uh, we talk a lot about having mentors and uh, finding people that uh, you know you can communicate with and ask questions. Uh, certainly, that's something that I've done you know throughout my career. Um, are you open if people want to contact you and uh, grab coffee? I know there's a lot of good info at Spark Justice Careers, but if they want to uh, chat with you or you 
you know, ask you questions about kind of your practice area. Are you open to that? Oh, yeah. I get a lot of those calls or emails all the time, and I love them. It's like my highlight of my day. So Spark Justice was my, you know, like little passion baby, so to yeah. speak. I did it despite being incredibly busy with work because I just love it. So please reach out if you're interested and want to chat with me. What is your email? It's Laura, L-A-U-R-A, at wolfgavara.com, W-O-L-F, like the animal. Guevara is G-U-E-V-A-R-A, like Shea Guevara, dot com. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you uh, so much, Laura, for coming on. It was a real pleasure. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks, you too. Get legal with it.